0: plushcare.com slash loss.
1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. And today we're touching on an issue that I think is usually a silent issue in society, but Man, it's, it's really getting up there. It's in everyone's faces and, you know, I think a lot of you listening may have struggled with this. You may know someone who's struggled with it and that's gambling. Uh, I've got Jono, who is a listener of the podcast, who happens to be a psychologist and has dealt with this type of stuff uh, for a
3: number of years.
2: So, Jonathan, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thanks for having a chat with us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, long-time listener, first-time guest. Um, Love it. Yeah, I
2: appreciate being here. Now, can you just give us a bit of an elevator pitch? And we've kept Jono's last name off just for his own professional anonymity or whatever you call it. <laughs> what have you done in your background? What type of work have you done as a psychologist and how long for?
3: I've been a psychologist. I provisionally registered and then fully registered for just shy of 10 years. A lot of that time I've been working with trauma. So uh, there's different varieties of trauma from complex trauma and PTSD and at the moment I work with uh, uh, defense force veterans, so combat PTSD mainly, but that comes al- along with a lot of addictions. And then in between that, I, I spent time working as the gambling help psychologist for North Queensland. Yeah, so
2: it's, it's really not your first rodeo. And uh, when you reached out and said you'd be able to help and we had a, uh, an initial chat on the phone because uh, I usually with some guests, I'm just like, yep, yeah, jump in and have a chat on the fly, but I really just wanted to make sure I could get the right person and you're already a listener of the show and you really um, had worked with a lot of addiction. So we're going to just basically have a chat about gambling and addiction. There'll be some correlation, hey, because it's all just the underlying thing is addiction, right? So insert your addiction here. These principles may be the same for whatever your
3: addiction is, right? I mean, you can replace whatever behavior, substance, stimulus... Um, addiction is addiction. You know, some people are addicted to shopping, some gambling, some alcohol, uh, cigarettes, you know, your phone, social media. Now, in the brain, the language of, of addiction is the same. It doesn't matter the, the trigger to that. Mm. Well, we're going to get into it.
2: So strap in, everyone. This is going to be a very valuable episode and we'll go deep right now. Okay, before we get into it, I'm just going to read you uh, some facts about gambling in Australia. And I've actually found this on a website called takeactumble.com.au. This was an article published in July, uh, just of this year, twenty twenty one, by Adriana Moskowska. Sorry if you haven't, if I haven't pronounced your name right there, uh, but it's a really good uh, in depth look at some facts. And I'm just going to read the top ten uh, facts that uh, she's put at the top of this uh, blog. Half of the Australian population gambles on a regular basis during the pandemic, the proportion of online gamblers rose to 78%. The average Aussie gambles away about $1,260 every year. The majority of regular gamblers are men. And that's interesting, Jono, because I was talking with Victoria Devine of She's on the Money just today, and she's preparing a a similar episode over on She's on the Money. And anecdotally, uh, she reached out for some stories and you know, Yes, a lot of her listeners are, are female, but it was just overwhelming response of people um, reaching out to her because their uh, partner, who's a man, was really struggling with uh, gambling and addiction. So you can look out for that episode uh, in the coming weeks on She's On The Money. Australia has close to 200,000 gaming machines. Uh, that's one per 100 adults. More than half a million Australians bet on sports in 2018-19, 1.8 million Australians placed some kind of bet per year quarterly in 1819. In 2017-18, 8.6 million Lotto and scratchy tickets were sold. The total gambling turnover in 1819 was $225 billion. And sports bet is considered the best and most used. Online betting site in Australia. So lots going on there. Um, you know, $1,260 per year on average. Uh,
3: that's not chicken feed, is it? That's a lot of money. And I think you know, gambling is so intertwined with Australian culture. I mean, we gamble more than any other country on earth. And that's including the renowned gamblers like Hong Kong and Singapore. Mm-hmm. We're miles in front of them. And it is intertwined in especially for men, there's a, there's almost this kind of identity of uh, let's go have a punt, right? Let's go to the TAB, have a beer or, or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's very intertwined into our national identity. Yeah. And to be honest, I think there is just too much big
2: business fingers in the pie. I mean, I saw a thing the other day, someone on LinkedIn said they read um, the sports section in a major newspaper in Sydney, it was 10 pages, of the sports section, but five of the pages were full page gambling ads. Like, give me a freaking break. You can't watch the TV without this live punt during half time. It's just ridiculous. And I, I just honestly, the government just must be raking in, in taxes and turning the other bloody blind eye. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, sorry, I just get enraged because I just hate with a passion the
3: ads that I see for um, particularly the sports bet type ads? Mm. Yeah, I mean, think about what is the purpose of an advertisement? What, what are they trying to achieve? They're trying to, to create revenue. Yeah. They're trying to get you to buy the product. And so those ads are very exciting. They activate, you know, if you have a problem with gambling, they're going to activate that dopamine reward system that's going to ramp you up with motivation to go and do the thing mm-hmm. and the thing being gambling. Um, you know, the, the industry knows how to do that and that's what advertising is all about.
2: Yeah. And the one thing that I like just from personal experience looking in, you know, we know that clubs and pubs and all that, they, they do provide a good social hub for the community, right? But I honestly don't know how a CEO of a big club can stand up and say, we do so much for the community when they're not looking at the other hand of how much they're possibly destroying families. Like it's just, my mind explodes, right? Like one hand, sure, they give grants to the local kids soccer team. Awesome. Mm. Amazing. You do all this cool stuff. Oh, but we will just ignore
3: how much money we're raking in from vulnerable people. Take with one hand, give with the other. It's... um. To me, it, it's a really well uh, mm. thought out and complex spin. So if I can create the image that I am giving with this, I'm giving to, back to the community and I'm making sure you know, everyone's got a sense of community. However, you're eradicating sense of community through the um, perpetuating of gambling addiction. So it's uh, give with one hand, take with the other. Mm. So I might now move to an anonymous story
2: from somebody who sent in their story to the podcast. Uh, they're anonymous, as I said. Uh, we've used the voice person to uh, read it out. They're from New Zealand, but it really doesn't matter because it's a human condition, what we're talking about here with addiction. Uh, but I'll let Jono say a few words after we hear this.
0: I've always been massively into sport. I was lucky enough to leave school into a very well-paying job that enabled me to surf the internet while genuinely working. Sports betting just seemed like an obvious route to take. I always had to push the boundaries and almost straight away was betting hundreds at a time. On a good wage in a cheap town and flatting with my friends while also having a fairly good success rate meant I never saw it for the issue that it was. But there always came a day where I would lose control for an hour or two. One memory in particular is blowing 4000 on netball in about two hours. But I always paid my bills though and never really went hungry. I just might not have been able to go to the pub that week. Now fast forward two to three years and I'm starting to take it more seriously. I'm in my early 20s by this stage, and the game is far more exhilarating than the actual betting. I sold my 10K car to add to my betting bank. I didn't buy a house when they were dirt cheap because I didn't want to pay the mortgage, and I was adamant I'd be able to pay cash for a house in a couple years. Then I decided to quit my job and take my 50 grand company super out to use as my betting bank, and I'd officially be a full-time professional better. See, in New Zealand, you can be in a company super scheme, Then when you leave the company, you can withdraw all of it. The grass was certainly not greener on the other side. My parents were hugely against this, but I convinced them that I had some sort of gift and was disciplined enough to make a future out of it. My friends made it out that I was some sort of king, and I loved it. But to this day, I still get asked if I'm that guy who chucked in that job to bet full time, and I absolutely hate it. I skirt around the subject very quickly. The betting was going relatively fine. However, I was spending and acting like some sort of underworld gangster extravagant trips overseas, meals out every day, and so on. I'm waging about $1,000 to 3000 a bet, with three or four bets on a game. So what's a $200 meal out or a $1,000 a night penthouse suite? To me, it was all relative. See, this was all when the betting was going quite good. Suddenly, my stakes were creeping up, though, to fund my lifestyle. But a few losses would mean that I would have to bet more and more and bigger and bigger. And this became a vicious cycle. An average size bet would be around $3,000, and my biggest loss on a game was fifteen grand. I ended up losing it all. However, the paradox was I actually made money, but I'd spend way more money on absolute crap. Even though I was a full-time better, there was absolutely nothing that was professional about me at all. After this, I had to find a job, and it's taken me six years of hard slog to get back to where I was. I genuinely feel like I've lost a decade of my life learning hard lesson after hard lesson. Looking back, there is one major reason why I got into gambling in the first place. I had no education around money really at all, other than mum and dad's save, save, save. This just seemed far too mundane and safe for me. Nowadays, I read companies' financial reports in my downtime and make a little play on the share market, instead of wagering who's going to score the next goal in some Far Eastern soccer game. My goal in time, when I can afford it, will be to get into property. There is a reason bookmakers promote customers' big wins so much. It gives people a dragon to chase. Sports betting has been my whole adult life and I've made some all right money off of it. But I seriously don't see any positives to it. Every single bookmaker closes down winning accounts. So if you or your partner
2: think that you're winning, think again. There's no way you win in the long run. I mean, that's just an absolute wild story. Uh, What are your takes listening to that, Jono?
3: There's a lot going on here psychologically. The first thing that comes to mind is that he really tells the tale of sort of drifting into the addiction, the psychological uh, mechanisms at play that keep him in it, but then coming out of it. I like the coming out of it part. Mm. So if I can go back into some of the, the principles that kind of, you know, kept him in there, what I'm hearing first and foremost is, Uh, he started to build a tolerance. So he said, I need to bet with larger amounts of money to get, you know, essentially the same excitement. And that's one of the diagnosable sort of criteria for any addiction is this idea of of tolerance. Uh, Another thing that comes to mind is he demonstrated some illusion of control, is what we call it. And what tends to happen is there's a a distortion in our thoughts. So our, our, cognitions start to shift and say, actually, you know, I've got some control over the outcome of this, this betting, this punt. Um, and when you're in it, when you're doing the betting, when you're playing the pokies there, it's, it's a legitimate thought. I've got this illusion of control. And another thing is what's called chasing losses. So when we're, um, Betting on horses or sports or playing the pokies, and we start to lose. That actually ramps up the desire to keep playing because there's a thought that if I just keep playing and get that win, I can get back to even. But of course, you know, gambling, it's, it, you're going to end up further in the hole. So chasing losses is a really big thing that I, I, I heard in that um, in that segment. Mm. And just the final thing, gambling or sort of really any repetitive behavior uh, relies on something called operant conditioning. So operant conditioning is when we do a behavior and we get a reward. Now, that reward or that behavior will stimulate the dopamine reward pathway. But if we get a reward every time we do the behavior, it doesn't, Um, habituate, so create a habit, as well as if we get a reward every other time. So intermittent reward to the behavior will strengthen the habit forming of that behavior. And if you look at gambling, you don't win every time. So the reward is intermittent. You get a win here and there, which strengthens this, this dopamine reward pathway to be laser focused in on this activity and eventually over time with addiction and this is any addiction gambling shopping uh, social media it's a gradual narrowing of what triggers or activates this dopamine reward pathway mm. so eventually it's just the gambling that that really kind of stimulates this feeling of excitement and motivation everything else loses its its buzz
2: yeah I think you've just articulated, you know, Daniel Aquilina wrote, what are the signs of gambling addiction? I mean, you really articulated that well. I I wrote down a heap of stuff when I was listening to that. Like, the addiction removes and robs you of reality, doesn't it? Like, this guy was living the high life. Mm. It's just, you know, there was just no reality or normality into that, was there?
3: No. Well, it's what we call a cognitive distortion. Right. So when we're looking at the way we think, we have certain biases, and we all do. We Every human in the world has uh, biased styles of thought. When it comes to addiction, there's this um, sort of magnifying the positive, I'm, you know, this is going well for me, and, and, and sort of um, ignoring the negative aspect. And especially with gambling, when you objectively get the numbers of how much have you bet? How much have you won? How much have you lost? And objectively get the numbers of that, you will find that they lose far more, far more than what they win. But in their mind, they go, actually, I was winning. Mm. I was doing well. So, this distortion is we block out the evidence that doesn't fit the belief that we have of I'm actually doing well at betting. It's
2: fascinating because, you know, when you look at gambling... Um, and multi-level marketing or trying to make the quick buck, right? At some point, and, you know, he lost six years of his life, you know, at some point, you're left holding the bag and it will flush
3: you. Mm-hmm. That's the sinister thing about gambling.
2: Mm. Mm.
3: It makes you believe that you're winning or you're doing good mm. while you're doing it, while you're playing, especially pokies. Pokies is the worst of them all. And then you gain clarity once you finish that activity and realise there's only one way. It's only going one way and that's eventually losing everything. You know, and for some people it's criminal charges and and, uh, losing family members and relationships and, and jobs.
2: Do you think one of the signs of a gambling addiction is if you have a gambling hangover? more than once a month or, I don't know, I'm just trying to kick
3: the can around here. Like, what are some practical signs? So when you say gambling hangover, are you talking about like that shame after having a big blowout?
2: Yeah, like, oh, I lost $150 on the pokies last night. Oh, I couldn't actually afford it. If I could turn back time, I'd like my money back. Like, oh, I can't tell Mm. my partner. Um, Like, I had a neighbour once. He said to me, he got in the crap from his wife because she found $16,000 missing out of their account. Oof. And it almost just destroyed them. And we just can't let people
3: get to that point. So
2: yeah. what?
3: Yeah. You've actually touched on something that when we diagnose gambling disorder or any um, mood disorder or, or mental illness, there's a very important factor to anything. And that is is there a clinically significant impairment or distress? Mm. Now, sort of what that means in, in application is does it cause dysfunction in relationships? Do relationships break down because they find out 16 grand's missing, mm. right? Is there strain there? Is there strain on your occupational functioning? I've taken days off work because the shame of, of having a big gambling blowout is just too overwhelming and I just can't face anyone today. You know, and then you've got financial impairment. You know, uh, the impairment just goes across the domains of life, and that is a fundamental diagnostic criteria to any disorder, and gambling is is the same. So, when we think about like how do you how do you diagnose you know, a gambling disorder, that's your first one.
2: Mm.
3: There's there's another set of criteria that I can go through um, that kind of delineates you know someone gambling and it might be an issue versus gambling disorder. Yeah,
2: because I think I'll get you to do that because I really want to um, kind of just say out loud, like, and I've been guilty of it as, you know, the next person, like, you know, a handful of eight of us are going out, catch up, you end up in the pokey room and, you know, you might throw $20 in, oh, I lost that, all right, we go away. And, you know, it's more of that mateship bond. But, you know, if there's a group of eight of us at a Bucks weekend or something and everyone's having a punt statistically, one of those guys has a problem. So That's I, shocking, isn't it? Yeah. And I just really want to, I guess, for the people out there listening, like we are probably not talking about the person who might throw the $20 on a, in a social environment and they don't think of it. It's probably more those people who you've got the app on your phone. You're punting more than once a week or once a month or once a quarter, like whatever your thing is. So I don't know if you want to just make some comments about, you know, blowing $20 once every six months at a frigging at the pub or something
3: with mates being dickheads, or I don't know, I'm just trying to draw a line. There's a separation. Some people and some people will, will be able to gamble and put 20 bucks on, you know, in the Melbourne Cup or whatever, and it doesn't cause an issue. You know, for some people, gambling really stimulates that dopamine uh, pathway, and Dopamine is literally about creating energy and motivation to seek, to pursue the reward. It's not the reward itself. It's mm. the act of pursuing the, the, the reward. And for whatever reason, some people is really stimulated from gambling. Some of the criteria that separates someone that's got gambling disorder and or at more risk of be, uh, becoming diagnosable gambling disorder versus, you know, Joe Blow that can chuck 20s uh chuck 20 bucks on the pokies and, and be fine. Like I said before, there's this tolerance aspect. So I need to gamble with more money to get that level of excitement, which is the dopamine. You know, I'm feeling excited and motivated. But with any addiction, there comes withdrawal. And you definitely see withdrawal, uh, withdrawal symptoms uh, with problem gamblers. So they get restless, they get irritable when they're, they're trying to cut down, they're trying to stop gambling. And essentially, they're having an anxiety response, a fight or flight response to not getting that dopamine stimulus. Mm. So that's sort of another factor. Um, So having uh, repeated unsuccessful attempts to try and control it, cut back, stop gambling. Um, A lot of people have this preoccupation with gambling or whatever activity it is. You can replace gambling with anything. Mm. But it's a preoccupation of, you know, when can I get to gamble? Um, I've had people in the past that you know, they're planning a family holiday with their kids and their wife, and they plan that holiday around, I can go to this club or this pub, and I can have a punt. Um, I've had people that literally dream of the pokies music, or when they're trying to sleep, they can hear that music in their head. So this, this kind of preoccupation um, with the act of gambling is another big symptom using gambling as a method to soothe uh, your own distress. So, if I'm feeling uh, shame, I've had a fight with my partner or I haven't performed well at work, I'll go have a punt. I just need to go, you know, go have a bet and I'll feel okay. So, these are just some of them. There's a few more, but they really separate the two populations, I think. Mm. And it is really, you know, insert
2: your thing here because, you know, I might actually play another audio clip of somebody who was struggling with alcohol and we might play that now Mm. because I guess what I've learned in my own sessions with psychologists over the years, you know, in a professional sense, you really don't care about the symptom per se because often for me, you know, this act was the symptom So the gambling was the symptom, the drinking was the symptom, the porn or whatever it was, it was the symptom. You know, choose your symptom. Let's just cut all that and just get back to the problem. Um, But anyway, I'm not a psychologist. (laughs) You are. But does Uh that kind of make sense? Like it really doesn't matter
3: almost? 100%. 100%. Um, For some people, they might just have gambling disorder or Mm. just have alcohol use disorder. What we find in, in clinical practice is you dig beneath the surface a little bit, uh, there might be some comorbid major depressive disorder. There, um, Poverty is a big you know, uh, predisposing factor to addiction. Um, so when we dig beneath the surface and, and the addiction sort of this, this, what they come in for, we actually find a lot of uh, diagnosable mood disorders, um, a lot of trauma in their background as well. And, you know, some would say that if I treat the... The core issue being the mood disorder or the trauma then the, the the symptom of addiction might go away. The problem with that is often the addiction has been the behavior of the addiction has been repeated to such degree it's become its own habit mm. and so yeah it, it's sort of a case by case basis but you're hundred percent correct you you will find. That there is a lot more going on beneath the, the the surface than just the addiction for most people.
2: Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add that in there because I hope that people forward this episode to people in their networks and you might just have mm. your group chat and say, Hey guys, I heard this good episode. I'm not singling anyone out. Just want you to listen to this. You might know someone. So I just wanted to say that because don't be ashamed to get help because you know, if you go to your GP and get a referral for a psychologist psychologists, they're not sitting around judging people. And it's just, we're all humans and we've all got our crap. So, let's have a listen to this and then we'll uh, we'll speak out this as well.
4: Hey, I'm three. I'm a 29-year-old from Sydney. And uh, I'm going to just be answering some questions Glenn's given me. And probably, I'll probably start off by saying that um, addictions are a pretty personal journey so um just keep that in mind and keep an open mind that uh my journey might be different to yours and um please find your own help in the way that you see necessary you know and I probably first thought I had a problem with alcohol when I was about oh, 25 and uh basically was going to work I had a bottle of Listerine in my car and I was driving my apprentice around and uh pretty much just to keep the the stink off me for work and then one day I got um my boss came up to me and he let me go. And then the next, the afternoon I was crying to my girlfriend on the car, and she broke up with me. You know, and my only solution to that problem was to go get a drink. And by the end of that night, I was picking up coins in the uh, RSL fountain to fund my next drink. The rock bottom for me was probably wanting to stop, and then realizing I couldn't. You know, it's it's pretty scary. When you're surrounded by uh, a bunch of people your age and uh, they're enjoying their drinking, and you know they can go home and they can they can stop, and that wasn't really possible for me. One was too many, and a thousand wasn't enough. And um, yeah, it it had a real hold of me, and it was it was it was it was a pretty scary time because I didn't really know where to go for help, especially because. Um, Everyone my age was still drinking and and didn't really have this have this uh, problem. Being two years sober now, I you know I haven't had a drop in two years. And uh, there are other addictive things that I have in my life. You know, I uh, I don't have the capacity to not check my CMC markets at 11 o'clock every day and and my spaceship account. Uh, coffee's a really big one for me. You know, I love to change the way I feel, and I know that you know that's just that's just the side of addiction you know um you're not comfortable within yourself and you can be honest with yourself and uh actually not get chemicals or, or substances or material things to change the way you feel you can actually find out who you are and it's a it's a really nice experience uh the only way i i could actually uh, get sober and in turn control my drinking was uh, was go to alcoholics anonymous um psychologist didn't work for me because i could never be honest and um AA, you know, you're you're surrounded by people with the same problem, and it's not people with it's not people that you think of that are drinking from a brown paper bag. You know, alcoholics come in all shapes and sizes, and it's really nice to be comforted by people who had the same problem with me. And I learned that it was a it was a mental illness and it was a disease. I didn't know that before. I just thought I couldn't stop, and it was a willpower situation. But um, I'm just so you know, I'm so so lucky and so grateful that um, I went there and. And now my life is uh, is just better than I ever thought it would be.
2: Wow! And thank you so much, Anonymous, for uh, sending that in because, Jono, that to me that sounded like a very resolute account. Like clearly, he had hit that rock bottom, and you know, even going to a psychologist and couldn't tell the truth. Like, is that rock bottom? Like he went through this journey. And the reason I wanted to share that story is, again, remove alcohol, insert gambling. Remove the bottle of booze, insert sports bet app. You know, it's choose your addiction, people. Like, we've all got a proclivity to do something weird and get stuck into it. So, lots going on there. I wrote a heap of notes down. What's your take on on that, Jono?
3: First of all, I want to say the level of bravery to share your story um, publicly like this, but more specifically, the the courage and bravery to go to the first AA meeting. I mean, that mm. takes so much strength because in your mind, you're thinking, I am the, the worst. I've got all this shame. I can't share this with anyone. I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be rejected. Um, I've got to keep it secret. It's the keeping it secret going to keep you in the addiction so for this person to go to AA, uh, and not just that but to to try a psychologist it didn't work and and sometimes it doesn't the relationship with that that professional is very important and and you're not going to gel with everyone and but he kept going he tried something else and to me that just speaks to a huge level of strength and you know i applaud him for that there's a couple other things that really kind of uh were highlighted for me in his story. So sometimes it takes a couple of turns on on quitting, on stopping something. So there's there's something called the stages of change. And anytime we're trying to change a behavior, be it addiction or, you know, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to eat better, or whatever it is, there's certain sort of stages we go through. And one of them is called, well, the first one's called pre-contemplation. So we're not even thinking about it. We're not worried about what we're doing. It's all good. Even if people are suggesting to us, hey, look, you know, you should probably stop drinking. You should probably stop gambling. The next one is contemplation. So we start to have that thought. We're not changing the behavior, but we're starting to have that thought in the back of our mind like, oh, you know my mates can drink and go home but i'm i'm still out here by myself drinking i can't stop like that's that's something going on then we move into preparation you know we're selecting a quit date or we're telling the people around us you know i'm going to quit i'm going to need your help we're preparing the next one being action all right we're done we're quitting it all good then we move to maintenance but in between action and maintenance what you're going to find is that most people will have what's called a lapse or a relapse. So a lapse is like a one-off, like, you know, I've gone and put a a bet on, I've gone and played the pokies one time, but I'm back into action stage now, I'm not going back. A relapse is a full-blown, I'm back in it, and then I have to go through that cycle of pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, preparation again, which might take a year or, or six months or something. So I could really hear that in his story So he, he would probably be, uh, well and truly
2: in maintenance mode and going very strong. And I guess from hearing what you're saying then and hearing from other people who have been going to AA for the last 20 years, because the risk is too great not
3: to have that accountability. Definitely accountability. AA, you've got your, your sponsor and you call them when you're having, when you're having an urge or a craving and, and. With gambling, craving and urges are very real, very real. And, and the reason for that is there is a depletion of dopamine and you go below baseline by a huge degree and it's expressed through anxiety and irritability. And, you know, with addiction, it's the narrowing of what stimulates that dopamine increase. So to avoid the pain of the urge, we've only got one option you know, to to go back and do the thing. So when you've got an accountability person, a sponsor, that adds to your ability to ride the wave of the urge. Um, Another point I want to make about AA, there's also uh, GA, so Gambling Mm. Anonymous. That's a real thing. But these kind of programs, the AA, the GA, the NA for narcotics, the reason they're really effective is the sense of community. So... Addiction is often experienced in isolation. You know, I keep it secret. I don't tell anyone, right? But when you come to a community that can think the same, feel the same, experience similar things, that's where this huge protection element comes into play. And it's a really powerful element as well. So I encourage everyone to to seek out those sorts of organisations.
2: Yeah, I, I just, um, I'm just listening to this and I'm like, this has got to be one of the most powerful episodes that we've ever actually recorded because, you know, this stuff's real. And I'm thinking of stuff in my own life that I'm like, oh, have, and this is like, I don't want to trivialize it, but even like, for me, it could be the eating or something. It's like, hang on. Am I letting something go unchecked? Am I? And I think I guess what I want to get at just to encourage everybody if you're not right or something's weird, it's okay to talk to your GP because, you know, I take effects or 75 milligram a day, right? And it just, it just gives me that life jacket to keep me above the water. But, you know, if you're sitting at the water level or below all the time, like it's going to be harder for you to control some of this crap that's going on. So, I don't know, I just really want to give, you know, everyone a shout out that if you're struggling or if someone sent you this episode and it's the first time you've heard My Millennial Money, there'll never be any judgment here and it's okay to ask for help. And it might not be a, a, a medical solution. So can you just talk, you know, psychology? I found great benefit in my life from talk therapy. Mm. Can you maybe just talk about, um, you know, when we might not need um, some effects or Zoloft or,
3: you know, whatever other... Prestiques of the yeah. world are. So, when we're talking about sort of antidepressant medication, um, there's a couple of classes of them. Uh, the main one being what's called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Long story short, without going into the, the deep neuroscience of it, it kind of gives us more serotonin. Serotonin mm-hmm. is a neurotransmitter that gives us the sense of kind of stillness, contentment, right? When there's depression in the mix, we we don't have that. So it gives us a little boost of serotonin um, and we feel a bit better. What we find, and research really suggests this, is that it's the combination of talk therapy and um, uh, pharmaceutical intervention, which is the gold standard. In isolation, Mm -hmm. we don't get the same results. If if someone was just to take... um, And for gambling, I'm not sure how effective... SSRIs would be anyway because um, it's a behavioral addiction. I really think psychological intervention is, is what's going to shine there. Um, yeah. But taking it in isolation, we do get results. We do get some benefit, but together you, you're going to really get that gold standard. Um, yeah. So it's an important question. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I just guess
2: like for me talking from experience, like I tried to wean off my meds at the end of last year. And I was just like, no, I'm just, I can't do this. This is not the right me. My life was actually, I'm like, this is what I felt like for 10 years. Like my life's a train wreck, like feeling like this, I can't do it. You know, if I was in that state and felt there was no out, maybe I might go looking for substance. I might go looking for gambling. I might go looking for stuff to give me that, Perk, Um, absolutely. So yeah, just to again a comment to say no shame if you
3: uh, if you need to see a GP and uh, see a psychologist. And I'll just make a comment there: shame is is really the 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 anchor to the addiction. Shame prevents you from telling your loved ones, from recruiting the support that you need, and you know a psychologist is is really important to breaking down that shame, um, sort of decoupling the emotion of shame from the event. And, and you said something before I want to kind of touch on is that you know, addiction or addictive behaviors, we've got this stereotype in our head that you know I'm this hugely addicted heroin user on, on the street, homeless, begging for money to get my next hit. That's not the reality of the world. We all have some repetitive behavior, which could be classed as addiction. We need to change the paradigm of addiction. Um, we need to increase the parameters of what we consider kind of addictive behavior. And can I just
2: jump in? And, and again, like, I want you to use this stuff as a check for your own life. You know, we've just come out of lockdown in New South Wales. I, this is so crazy, Jono. I would have, and again, I'm, I'm just using an example. So chill out everyone, because I don't drink alcohol, never have. Um, I'd have one Coke Zero or Coke No Sugar, on a Friday night, just as my thing. Lockdown happened. I was having it two or three nights a week. Then I would, just from the servo, then I was at Woolworths and I was buying the little four packs of glass bottles, keeping it in the fridge. Get this, just by the two weeks ago, I bought a big box of cans. And I'm like, this is not good, Glenn. Like, I, I can actually live quite okay without it. And I just got into this habit, into this addiction that I needed a Coke, no sugar every night with my dinner because, oh, it feels so good. So
3: that right there, oh, it feels so good, all right? That is the underlying mechanism of addiction. Chocolate, Mm -hmm. Coke, a really good meal, like for some people a good workout. the, The mechanisms of addiction are the same for these things. You've just described perfectly the very subtle, the, the, the creeping kind of, of nature of addiction. It, it, it doesn't jump at you. You don't get chemically addicted to things like that. It's slow. It's subtle. You have to repeat the behavior. And now what happens is you're starting to build a tolerance. All right? That feel-good stuff as you had that one Coke Zero on a Friday night. Now, lockdown, you've got boredom. You've got increased leisure time. You've got other things. I need more simulation. All right, so I'll have another one. We're in lockdown. I'll have another one. And then what happens is that is not enough and tolerance starts to to build. As tolerance builds, you're going to get its sort of uh, counterweight of pain. And that pain is going to be experienced as, oh, I can have another one. It's not pain as in, oh my God, I need a Coke right now. The pain is experienced so subtly. It's like, ah, it's locked down. I can have another one. And I can
2: tell you exactly what happened. And this, for me, I've just tried to to be more self-aware with my actions. I, I started to justify it. I rarely look at the price of things in the supermarket, right? I actually went, well, it's actually, you know, price per 100 mil, it's actually cheaper to buy the 32 pack of, I'll just buy the, you know, I'm an idiot. Why am I buying the nice glass bottles? I just, so it was just, you know, and a lot of you might be thinking, wag, and there's real people with real problems. And I get that. But what I've experienced is that cascade down. And again, insert your problem here. So
3: what you described there is that cognitive distortion I was talking about before that, oh, it's cheaper if I just buy this. It's so subtle, so subtle. Oh, I may as well just chase that loss and, and bet again. So yeah, you've described that perfectly and Coke uh, Coke Zero, you start here, but it's the same recipe. It's the same process as anything. Mm. Hey, we're going to take a quick
2: break and we're going to come back and answer some questions. I did have a heap of questions that I took from the Facebook group, but a lot of these have been answered. So we'll be right back after this.
1: If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help.
2: Now, there was a common theme, Jono, and Magdalena said this, and this came up a couple of times what is the best way to help someone identify they have a gambling problem, including yourself? So we've kind of talked about the self kind of diagnosis, like are we noticing uh, almost that cascading thing? Uh, But there was another one there about, okay, if we see it in somebody else, you know, is it the old saying you can't make a horse drink water or whatever the thing is? Like if there's people in our lives, is it, what do we do? It's
3: hard. That is a it it seems like a simple question, but it's a, there's a complex answer. Um, and there's not one right answer for every person. Um, Mm. clinically speaking, I think if you're worried about them, having a honest, raw, vulnerable conversation with them is very important. And there's no consequences to that conversation. You're not saying I'm just going to stop being your friend unless you, none of that. It's, I'm really worried about you, you know? Um, if we link that back to the stages of change model, that might kind of help push them along from pre-contemplation to contemplation, okay? So if you can identify that there's strains in the relationship, so that clinically significant impairment, um, have a real conversation with them. For a lot of people that are problem gamblers or problem drinkers, there's a voice, there's there's a there's a thought deep back there saying, yes, I have a problem. But we, we put the facade on. Nah, it's all right. I'm just having a punt, mate. Like I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm not betting too much uh, that I, I can't afford to lose, but there's a thought back there. And so we might plant the seed of change, but I wouldn't expect change quickly.
2: I actually, I wrote a question down that I was going to ask at the start and I'll probably just make it more of a comment. Like, I was going to ask you, why do intelligent people get addicted to gambling when they know the odds are against them? Like when you are talking with loved ones about addiction and stuff that you can see, it's almost
3: you can't go from a logical base because it's a a behavioral thing, right? Yeah. it's So, there's a couple of answers to that. I think intelligence doesn't have anything to do with feeling good. Addictions make us, whatever the behavior is or the, the substance, we feel good. Okay, so this is operating on a deeper level in the, in the brain um, rather than the intellectual level, which is kind of, it's called the prefrontal cortex, just behind the forehead. That kind of manages or influences our ability to foresee consequences, problem solving, uh, ethics, morals, and, and that sort of thing. But addiction isn't there. And so as we repeat the behavior of addiction, whatever that behavior is, it strengthens the emotional link, the emotional tie to that, that stimulus, that behaviour. And increasingly what happens is the prefrontal cortex stop, uh, sort of stops having its dampening effect on that emotion. So as the addiction increases and becomes more severe, our ability to think our way through it is not there. The other thing is that when you're in the... Let's take pokies, for example, because that really induces like a trance-like state you're not operating from an intellectual, logical, reasonable place in your thought. That's not what's happening. You're operating in a very uh, much lower state, if that makes sense.
2: Mm, mm. There's a question here from Natalia Bello: Is there such a thing as addiction-prone genes or can addiction potentially affect anyone and is it more related to environment and choices I ask as I have seen through my life addictions that have been passed through generations and I'm curious to know if it's only a learned behavior or something biological, um, blah, blah, blah. I wrote the blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) You know, you touched on poverty before, like that there is a high correlation with, you know, Mm. substance abuse and addiction and whatnot. Could it be that because the poverty is intergenerational,
3: the other stuff's just going to be there? Like what's your take on this? Um, The best way to answer that is to think of like a quite a complex Venn diagram. So one, uh, one element of that question was about is there sort of addiction-prone genes? And there is a component of genetic predisposition. The severity of how much that, that gene impacts the addiction developing, we don't know for sure. And it's a bit of a chicken and the egg scenario. So, you know, if I'm the child of, of parents that have addiction then I might have some genetic predisposition to developing addiction, but I'm also going to be around it. I'm mm. also going to grow up in the, in the environment. And, and genes can turn on and off according to experience. They're not set in stone. They're not this, I've got the gene and here we go, it's, it's all over. That's not how they operate. Our experience will dictate whether these genes are, are turned on or turned off. Mm. So experience matters. Uh, a hell of a lot
2: yeah there's a question here from Matt Morrissey and it, it is kind of similar but I'll read it because we can chat about it advice on how to help two of my mates always betting on horses and pokies they joke about they have a gambling problem but I don't think they generally recognize it they couldn't care less I'm not responsible for them and it's not exactly my problem but I can see they have a problem and I want to try and help without causing an issue we're all 22 and have no savings and live at home with no personal loans, but they could have great financials and I know not everyone cares or sees it that way but gambling's not good for anyone in the long run. I mean, yeah, this is a, a problem I think that is sweeping through Australia particularly with um, you, know, you know younger guys with the, um, the, the horses and the apps and all that crap I mean, we just didn't have the apps 10 years ago. It wasn't as accessible. It's a trap. It's a danger. So I guess my take on that is from a pure behavior point of view, removing you know, a gambling addiction aside uh, from a money dude's point of view, they just don't have solid financial goals and solid financial plans in their life. Um, they've got good money. They live at home with no debt and they're just having a good old time. Um there is a chance that they'll grow out of it and things will change. But there is also a chance, you know, with your mates that someone's going to get caught and it's, it's just so wild that all this crap's in our pocket these days. What do you take on this, uh, Jono?
3: The accessibility issue is, is a big concern. Um, you know, in lo- uh, during lockdown periods, those apps and the amount of money lost on those apps went through the roof. Um, boredom, you know, well, let's look for stimulation. What can I do? What can I do? Um and these kind of young guys that are engaging in this behaviour, what I'll really sort of mention, the more that you repeat the behaviour, you, you will stimulate that dopamine. And then all the other things that used to provide dopamine, a sense of sort of pleasure and motivation, just creeps, creeps in. It's only the, the, uh, the gambling. So while you're ahead of it now, you might not have this full-blown addiction, get onto it now. The best way to do that is to go, all right, I'm just going to, you know, not do it for a while. I'm not going to do it for a week. All right. So if you're doing it every day, every weekend, every Friday, you're really um, sort of developing a very strong habit, a very strong behavioral addiction. Uh, So get ahead of it now.
2: Yeah. And, you know, guys, this is just the start of this whole conversation. Uh, I've reached out to uh, Tim Costello, who's been prominent in the kind of anti-pokies movement in Australia, uh, I'm going to try and get him on and do kind of a part two of this, and we really will talk a bit more around the advertising laws and all that because there was a heap of comments in there. Jono, I want to round it out now because I think it's this episode's probably just a good tool for people to hear, self-identify, and maybe forward to a friend. You know, and we will put a heap of resources in the show notes. So if you do want to reach out to GA or the gambling helpline, uh, you can do that. But, you know, any anything that you wanted to say, Jono, that we didn't get to and maybe some practical steps for those who might uh, be caught in
3: a pinch. Hmm. Um, I, I want to mention like what you can do. I, okay. So I've identified, you know what, I've got a problem. I can't stop. I've tried. I invite you to go online where there is anonymity and you don't have to confront that shame. Gamblinghelponline.org is our kind of national gambling um, help organization. They've got a questionnaire that you can fill out called the Problem Gambler Severity Index. And they've got a heap of really good information that you can just peruse on your own. And when you're on your own, you can be a lot more honest rather than, you know, sort of sharing your your shame with someone else. So, jump onto there. That can link you to counsellors.
2: I'm actually um, just on that, Jono. Um, I'm just on that and I'll read some of the questions out just to really um, hmm. make it easier. Um, have you bet more than you could really afford to lose? You know, never, sometimes, most of the time, always. Have you needed to gamble with larger amounts of money to... Uh, get the same feeling of excitement? Have you gone back another day to try and wing back the losses? Have you borrowed money or sold anything to gamble? I mean, yeah, there's,
3: thanks for that. I'm going to actually send that to a couple of friends, <laughs> mm. I'm being honest. I like that idea because it's this, I can sit and be vulnerable with myself a lot easier uh, than going to my loved ones and saying, hey, this is what's going on for me. And I I just think that that little uh, barrier of being online uh, can be a protective factor. And it could
2: actually be the first step to that, you know, pre-contemplation that you talked about.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, getting onto that website, they've got um, a lot of resources to sort of say this is how it develops. Uh, This is what an urge feels like and how uh, there's things you can do to manage an urge like mindfulness Mm. training and um, sort of uh, relaxation training. Yeah. And so they've got a lot of good resources, but they also link you in to to a gambling help counsellor, which is what I used to be uh, for them Mm. um, in your area. Yeah. Wow.
2: Uh, Anything else to bookend, Jono? I think
3: just to mention that everyone's got something. Yeah. Yeah. No one's above this thing called life, right? No. I I want it, I really want the message to be to take away this idea of um, any kind of character weakness in someone with addiction. It's That's not the case, mm. all right? And that is the big thing preventing people from getting help is I'm just weak, I need to control it myself, I've got the strength, I should be able to have the strength. Really kind of change your paradigm on what addiction is because we've all got something. Mm. Yeah, fascinating.
2: Jono, thank you so much for your time, for your voice, your cadence. Um, we couldn't have got a better person suited for this episode and I think we've now found a new resident uh, gambling psychologists go to in the m3 world and and this is just an example like if i put a shout out in the facebook group for somebody who is a professional you know i'd rather get someone who's a listener of the show who kind of gets our vibe anyway to yeah to to give back to the community and uh it's certainly really valuable to have your time uh with us right now Jono. so thank you so much
3: yeah Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
2: No worries. All right, guys, stay tuned for the part two. I'll try and do that in the coming weeks, and we'll talk more about the legislation part of it. But, yeah, we're just getting this conversation started, and, yeah, I've certainly had a lot to think of uh, during this chat. So, see you guys soon. Bye.